In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So during my priestly career, I've worked mostly with either very young children or with middle and high school aged youth. And I never really had the opportunity to work with elementary school kids until I was fortunate enough to be a chaplain for my previous diocese's camp in southwest Florida. It was our version of Camp McDowell. Now, Dayspring, as it's known, is a wonderful camp. And all in all, this elementary camp session was a great experience, not only for the campers, who got to do all those fun things like swimming and archery and canoeing, but it was just as meaningful for me. And being with these third through fifth graders nearly all day, every day for a week, really began to open my mind about the human psyche and gave me a unique opportunity to see how they made decisions and interacted with each other. So for example, if one girl camper started doing cartwheels in the grass, the other girls would see that she was having fun. And the next thing you knew, you had 20 girls doing cartwheels and acrobatics outside or inside the building, as the case may be. But just the same way, if there was a camper who wanted to do something that they knew was wrong, say, grab an extra snack when they're only supposed to have one, I noticed that they would always look around first to see if anybody was watching. And if their eyes met some of their friends' eyes, and they knew they had an audience, they would have this sly smile on their face, and they would grab that extra snack. Then, of course, the counselor would step in and have a conversation about choices and consequences, and our day would continue. But over and over again, I witnessed how nearly every decision that these campers made was affected by who they were with and who was watching them at that time. From deciding what game to play during free time to even what food they would choose from the buffet at lunch. They were always watching the others. They always wanted to fit in, to be cool, to be liked. And the more time I spent with these 8 to 11-year-old kids, the more I began to realize that us grown-ups <laughs> really aren't that much different. Now this morning, we are presented with a graphic and even a disturbing saga, perhaps second only in the Gospels to Jesus' own death. We hear a story filled with power, with lust, with passion. The death of John the Baptist is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, but only Mark's version includes such detail that we hear this morning. This whole thing starts off when Herod first gets word that Jesus is going around Galilee performing miracles and preaching his good news. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is the same Herod that Jesus will visit right before he's crucified. And whose father, Herod the Great, put out the decree to have all the male children murdered when Jesus was born. 
So Herod's counselors report what's going on, and like most people, they don't really know what to make of Jesus. He's Elijah, raised from the dead, some say. Others say he's just another prophet. But Herod has this nagging feeling, this guilty conscience weighing on him. No, Herod says, it's John the Baptist, who I beheaded, raised from the dead. You see, Herod had a pretty valid reason to be concerned. Because ever since he had married his brother's wife, John had not stopped letting Herod know that he had done the wrong thing. In fact, John kept telling him so many times, and Herod's wife got so annoyed at hearing it, that she made her husband have him arrested and put into prison. But Herod knew that there was something special about John. He recognized that there was some sort of authority that John spoke with. And although he didn't really understand everything he was saying, he liked to listen to him. Now, today we can only speculate at what exactly John said to Herod that kept him so intrigued. But if we look at John the Baptist's life, his entire existence only had one purpose. And that was to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. We can imagine Herod finding excuses with his wife Herodias for finding any reason to go to the prison to listen to John. We might even imagine Herod and John sitting secretly in John's dark prison cell as John tells the king about the saving grace of God that Jesus is preaching throughout his kingdom. Now I wonder what might have been going on in Herod's mind as he heard these life-changing stories. I wonder how excited he might have felt knowing that maybe he too could be part of this new and radical movement, but we'll never know, will we? Because during the king's next birthday celebration, his own daughter, also named Herodias in Mark's gospel, but traditionally we know her as Salome, she came in and danced for the king and his guests, and Herod's passions and emotions began to cloud his mind. And he was so pleased that he promised her anything she wished. But instead of asking for even half of the kingdom, her mother saw this as a chance to finally get rid of that nagging preacher, and she demanded the head of John the Baptist on a platter. We can imagine the room falling silent at this gruesome request, and all eyes turned to Herod. All of his counselors, his military officers, anyone who was anyone in the eyes of the king had heard Herod make that promise, and were now staring at him, waiting to hear that response. What would he say? Would the king say, I know I promised everything, but my heart's actually been changed by this man and what he says about Jesus? What would his guests think? Would he look weak, soft-hearted, less of a man? We know, of course, what happened. But you can imagine what might have been different if Herod had stood up for what he knew to be true 
and right in the face of all that social pressure that day. When Jesus would later appear before him, would Herod have let him go rather than allowing his execution to continue? Who knows? But it's almost the same struggle we live on a daily basis as well. Because you see, whether we are eight years old or 98 years old, we want to be accepted. We want to fit in. Maybe we realize it or maybe we don't, but every time we make a decision, we look around to see who's watching. We subconsciously weigh those risks. Who will I upset if I say yes? Will I rock the boat too much if I make this suggestion? Will people still want to be my friends if I take this stance? We want to please those around us and minimize conflicts. And we see it play out over and over again in our national and international politics. We see it play out in our social circles, in our families. And we even see it play out in our church and in the church at large. Decisions based solely on appeasing one group at all costs have plagued humanity throughout history. But when we start compromising our integrity as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, just because of the way we think people will react, then we are not fulfilling the promises that we have made. As you see, at our baptisms, we proclaimed to put our whole trust in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Our whole trust. And this grace and this love is stronger than anything that this world could ever produce. Stronger than any words, any scoffs, any rejection that we could ever encounter. Just imagine what our world would be like if the basis for any decision we made was the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may not be able to change governments and corporations overnight, but we can change what we can control. We can change the way we talk. We can change how we spend our free time and how we spend our money. We can change how our children and our grandchildren view their role as members of the body of Christ. That first step is often the hardest, but it's also the most important. Could you see when we put our whole trust in the faith and love of God, then there really is nothing we should fear.